Hey, everybody, I found a great review. I love this. Absolutely amazing. Exclamation point five stars from B. Voss. The whole series has been great, but episode eight on sensuality, sexuality, and deconstruction was absolutely amazing. I sat and thought about so much of it for hours after. I'm going to have to go listen to that one. I know. I was like, what was on episode eight? (laughs) You guys, we so appreciate it when you leave reviews specifically and rate the show. It really helps other people to discover this content. Thanks so much. Rick's got a nice butt. He, he does, does have, have a, a nice, really butt. nice butt. He does. When Rick, the day, what was it, Thursday that Rick showed up, I was like, man, he dresses cool. Like yeah, for him to be like about to mm-hmm. be 70 in a mm-hmm. week, he dresses so cool. Yeah, that's all <laughs> Will Becky. you dress me? Like, <laughs> not physically, but will you? <laughs> it's kind of like bow, the bath bow, situation bow, from yesterday. <laughs> I'd be glad to dress you. I really My wife would probably really appreciate that. From Milieu Media Group. This is Fun Parts, an exploration of sexuality and spirituality. For anyone who's curious or convinced, there must be more. With your host, Becky Patton, Ashley Lusink, Steve Leeds, Luke Bronner, and me, Latifa Alatas. Fun Parts! You know, I was watching a movie the other day with my husband and we were watching The Fugitive. It's one of my all-time favorite with Harrison Ford. And in The Fugitive, for those people that don't know the movie, he his wife, who he dearly loves, is brutally murdered and he gets framed for it and ends up, he's like in shock at the trial and is deeply in need of like healing and he ends up going to prison, but he knows that he knows he did not do this. And so on the, he's on the bus on the way to prison and there is an accident and he literally is able to escape the bus and goes on the run because he wants to clear his name. But at, while he's hiding and it's just, I mean, I think it's a great movie. So oh, it's, it's the best. Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. And that's the guy coming after him. The and U.S. Marshal. U.S. Marshal. Anyway, we were all done with the movie and I won't give away the trailer, but Oh, uh, I'm giving away the trailer. That's not right. I You're not giving away the trailer. You're fine. <laughs> okay. You're giving I won't, away the movie. I'm, I'm don't, won't give away Would the end of the movie. Spoiler the trailer. is the word you were looking Spoiler, for. Spoiler, that's yeah. what I was looking for. Okay, but, well, I kind of have to to it's tell okay. my the point. It's okay, the movie's very old. It's very yeah. old, it's okay. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, in the end, what happens is he ends up finding the person who actually did kill what? his wife. And, yes, sorry, Luke, but but when he does that, he's exonerated and he comes into the fullness of who he is. And you see him just crumple into this heap of just tears and sobbing because he's finally able to grieve. And the person he actually grieves with, and now I'm going to get Terry, is Tommy Lee Jones, is the one holding him. It's okay. We've got him. We've got him. And he suddenly gets to come out from all this state of fugitive. And we were done with the movie. And I mean, like I just instantly shot up and I turned to my husband and I said, this is what the LGBTQ community is experiencing right now. This makes me so angry. They have to be fugitives from the people that actually need to be embracing them. And so it was like, I started to play around with this term and I was just like, what does it mean to be a sexual fugitive to have to run and hide the very essence of who you are because you're being accused of something that you are not? Because I don't believe there's anything that the queer community has done wrong. It's just that they're in a community that is labeling 
their identity as wrong in the Christian community. And so I kind of jotted it down and I was like, oh, I just, I want to fight for the sexual fugitives. And then I brought it up around the table here and we were all talking about it. And with the recent events of the Ukrainian war, I'm watching all these people having to flee for their lives. And I just realized, I think there's a better term. And Luke, you so graciously said, I don't think they're fugitives, they're refugees. Yeah, you used the term sexual fugitive before giving us the Richard Kimball, Harrison Ford context of it. And so I was like, ah, fugitive hits me different. But refugee feels like a, like a thing, the people who are trying to escape the harm that is being done to them. Yeah, because yeah. fugitive could be, without the movie reference, it could be like, are they guilty? Are they not guilty? A yeah. fugitive is just somebody's on on the run from the law. Yeah, but refugee is an innocent fleeing harm. A tyrant, yeah. typically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was the fugitive movie that gave kind of brought it up for yeah. me, and that's where I want to embrace that term. And so I'm just curious what you guys think of the term of sexual refugee. Hmm. I also like sexual Richard Kimball. I think that could be. <laughs> Who's Richard Kimball? He's Harrison Ford's He's the fugitive. character. He's the fugitive. That's his name in the movie. Oh, that's his name. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you, I thought you were talking about somebody here recently. Okay, yeah, he is Richard. Who's Richard? Because yes. then we can identify who's the sexual one. Our man. Who's the sexual <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones? Like, there's a whole metaphor there. There no, is. No, I like okay, I like Richard sexual Kimball. refugee. That that communicates something. Okay. I, I think really beautiful, heartbreaking, and beautiful. Well, and I think that religion, especially I want to say Western Christianity, has created so many places and ways that it's not okay to be, just be in your own body. And therefore, I think we have a lot of refugees that don't know where do I belong, sexual refugees that don't know where do I belong. Yeah, even outside the queer community, I think there's a lot of us who experience that, that fleeing of what was, I don't know, I'm just, I'm thinking now of like how many people could identify with that term. I was one. Yeah. Because I didn't fit. I mean, even bringing this topic up, I'm not, I don't want to in any way say that my fleeing is what the queer community is experiencing. I don't want to do that. What I know is that when I started talking about this topic of sexuality and spirituality and God is in all of us and we are all have goodness and we our sexuality is created by God in beautiful ways. I was told I was crazy. I was told to be quiet. I mean, so I've tasted a teeny tiny little bit of that in comparison to what I feel like our queer brother and sisters have experienced. Mm -hmm. That makes me so sad. It makes me angry. So there's a lot about the metaphor, which is interesting to me. One would be like, you know, in our country, there's a, a lot of people that feel that refugees don't deserve to cross our borders or make home or make way here. And I think about that in relationships to there are churches who would say that, like, you're not welcome here or you're not welcome to be on leadership here. or You're not welcome to get married here or you're not mm -hmm. welcome to have the same rights and privileges as other citizens of our community. The other thing that I'm thinking about is assimilation, because like my dad came to the United States undocumented and, you know, in the late 60s, you could get married and actually green card marry and stay. Now you can't. They tell people to go back to the international partner's country of origin for somewhere between five and 10 years. And then they have to like earn citizenship back to the States with most marriages now. It's just a lot more complicated to get citizenship. 
But I was just thinking like, you know, my dad came to America and, you know, he did the best he could, but he felt like assimilation, I could tell, was the best way to be here. And he loved being an American, but like he even took on the term of like, I'm white, like, and he was definitely not a white person. (laughs) Like he was extremely dark skinned, colored and had a thick accent and, you know, all he was definitely from... Yemen. It was no confusion. But, and I've, I've talked to my Asian friends and like, they've shared with me a lot of time, Asian culture wants to assimilate into the dominant culture, which tends to be white because it, they feel like they'll have more opportunity. They'll be accepted easier. And it's making me think about my friends in the queer community who stay at churches where they're not fully supported or fully affirmed. And so like, they might not have the same rights as the other members of church to lead a Bible study or get married in the building where they've been attending for 20 plus years, or they don't have the same freedom to move around. And it's different, but I relate to it in the same way of like, how long do I stay somewhere? Because I think I'm doing good. Like maybe I'll help change their minds. Like maybe I'll help move the needle of acceptance and me being here, even though it's at cost to me, is maybe doing something for like the greater good. And I think like what's really challenging about that when I see my friends in those positions is I just feel like at some point the harm that's being caused to you, not having the same rights, is going to wear you down and is going to burn you out. And you deserve to be in a community where you have the same amount of rights to move freely and a place where we're talking about people just gathering to worship together and be family together. You know, it's like if I had a dinner and I invited somebody over and they had like a lot of food allergies, but I was like, Oh, you're totally welcome here. Like come to dinner, come be at the table. And then they sit down at the table and the only thing they can eat is one item on the table. They are not going to get nourished. They will leave hungry They will leave like feeling awkward. They don't want to like maybe make a big deal. Like, is that me really being hospitable to a guest like in my home? If I'm hospitable, I'm like, okay, like Ashley and Becky, you did this when you were planning for food for this weekend. You're like, what are your food allergies? And I have this insane list right now because of pregnancy and I'm gluten free. And like, it's so fun to be in a place where there's all these options for me to eat you know, cause you want me to be nourished and you want the baby to be nourished. And I feel that it's such a genuine act of hospitality. You know, if I showed up and it was like, there were no options for me, <laughs> I'd be like, do you really want me here? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. how can we say, apples. yeah. How can we say you're welcome here? Like we accept the queer community in our church, but there's really nothing for you. It's interesting too. When you think historically about the church's role with refugees, like the church is supposed to be a place for refugees to come and yeah. receive sanctuary. And we are talking, especially with the queer community of people who are, they were refugees before they came into the church. They were That's refugees right. in their own country, in the States at least. And and so to like compound that trauma, compound that like unwelcomeness in the place, the very place where they should receive the most welcome and the most sanctuary and the most home with no expectation to assimilate in any way. That's, I mean, that's really, really heartbreaking. Yeah. It's devastating. We talked at the start of the season about sexual homelessness. And this is just like, this is like another take on that of like, to be always fleeing to, and have no, I mean, what, what is the sanctuary at that point? 
well, if not the church. And I think about refugees. I just recently, we have a daughter who lives in Germany, and they took a refugee family in for a few weeks. And one of the things that, like, she sent me a picture of, she says that teaching the woman how to ride a bicycle for the first time. And so there's this needing to not just provide them a safe place, but to help them figure out the system that they've now moved into, which I think is really, they're coming from another country. This was their second country to flee from too. They'd fled from Syria and then they had to flee from Ukraine. And like he was a CPA and she was a doctor. I mean, this is, these are educated human beings that had lives in these other places. And now they have to relearn how to have that take who they are and they have to learn a new language. They have to learn a new system, government like system. They're already doing so much. They're already doing so much. <laughs> yeah. And they had two small children and they have two oh. small children, a baby and a three-year-old daughter. But the thing that I found so fascinating is they needed somebody that was willing that spoke the language, which was my son-in-law to actually help them and hold their hands through the process. And then they needed, and my daughter speaks some of the language, not all of it, but they needed the compassion to walk with them. And I think of that's what the church is meant to be. We'll speak the language with you. We will help you with love. And then the relationship, you come in and you do this. And I feel like for so many people, they've not just been refugees from religious communities. They're refugees from their own homes. Yeah. 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 Neighborhoods, schools, workplaces. Their families, their grandparents, their mothers, their fathers. That it's like, if you're a refugee, you are living with high levels of cortisol streaming through your brain in survival mode, trying to find a place like, where can I be safe? Yeah. And I'm just fascinated thinking about this in a different way within the queer community. Maybe it's not that different, but for me, it's different going, oh, I need to learn the language better in a way that I can be with. I want to do the rela- the simple things. I want like, sounds simple, but like, let me help with that. But you have something that you're bringing. Let me learn from you. And it's like more of this to really be in the nitty gritty with makes you think people. Of, what was the group you're talking about off mic? The mama? Mama bears. I, I feel ill-equipped to actually, other than the fact that I'm now stalking the mama bears, <laughs> I'm just going to say that on mic. I want to become a part of the mama bears, but it's like this group that what they do and it started, I believe it started as a Facebook group, but it is mamas that recognize that the queer community need their mamas. And so like one of the stories I was telling you off mic was there was this young couple that they were getting married that, well, young couple, they're in their twenties getting married two women. And the one family rejected the daughter and said, we're, nobody's coming to the wedding. So she lost her mom or grandparents, mm. her siblings, nobody would come and nobody would recognize it because they said, you know, you're just, you're choosing sin. And they sent a, out a call and I can't remember what they call these certain calls, but they posted, said, I'm not going to have, my mom isn't supportive. And the mama bears came and said, okay, who lives in, I believe it was North Carolina, who lives in North Carolina in this region? Would you be willing to be the mama bear for this person. So two women came forward. They showed up the week of the wedding. They just did mother the bride stuff. They, they made speeches. Even they did speeches at the wedding about who they were and what they had seen them in that week. And they just love them. But they said, what it ended up doing is creating a relationship that was ongoing. But the woman who they'd stood up with, and they both walked her down the aisle. That's what Mm -hmm. the two mamas walked this girl down the aisle. And 
the interview part that I saw was the girl goes, I knew I wasn't alone. The mama bears came and got me. And I'm like, I want to be a mama bear because <laughs> yeah. I am a mama bear with my own children. And I'm a, I, I know what that feels like to advocate. Everybody deserves an advocate. Yeah. Everybody yeah. does. And so yes. one of the things that I think is so important is in the queer community that they know who their advocates are. So they know they're not alone, especially I want to say in the church, it can't just be this silent thing anymore. It can't. Mm -hmm. So, so can we talk about what the role of an advocate is then? I mean, I think one of the first roles is to actually be outspoken and to identify yourself so people know who you are. I mean, it's, yeah, people can't assume with this issue. It's very, people stay silent. It can be really tricky. And if you're prepared and ready to publicly advocate, whether that's in your community or on a social platform, I mean, it's up to you, whatever your speed. But I think like identifying yourself as an advocate is part of it. Hmm. For example, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and for a number of years, I was in a denomination where I could not do same-sex weddings and really could not talk about it, really hmm. could not even be public about my advocacy. And so I finally just decided that I was done with being silent. And so I'm doing a wedding for two women later on this year. And they found me because someone recommended me, you know, oh, you should, because at their church, they can't, you know, they talked to their pastors and their pastors were compassionate, but said, sorry, we can't do the wedding, uh, which breaks my heart. Barg. And one of the women, her dad's a pastor and he's going to come to the wedding, but told her, you better make sure that the pastor does not say, does anyone object to this wedding? Because uh -huh. I will have to say that I object. Oh. You know? Does anyone whose opinion matters object <laughs> to this wedding? Also, does anyone no, actually ever say that at a wedding? Never, I've never heard no. that at a wedding right. besides in the movies. I've right. never the ever movies said I've that. Heard it, it's ridiculous. It's just but, for the drama. So, you know, now, I don't think my advocacy lessens the pain of that. No. But, the, and it was really fun because, like, these women were really interviewing a couple different pastors, you know? Yeah. And so like, I maybe like I was interviewing for this job and I wanted it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I wasn't because, you know, they didn't get back to me for a while. And so I just sent a follow-up text and I, I just said, Hey, I assume you probably went with the other person, which is totally fine. I love you guys. You guys are great. And then they said, no, we actually just decided we want you. You know, so I was super <laughs> excited. But my whole point is that, and this is a delicate thing for pastors who are affirming, but are secret about it because they're worried about their job. Mm -hmm. I totally get that. But I think if you are a pastor who's affirming, but you are not out loud about that, at some point you got to decide what to do. I agree. You know, at, at, at some point, and I don't, I'm not saying what you should do, but I don't think for you or others it's sustainable to keep that secret forever. I, I just don't think that's... And I, I want to say this, it's very complicated. It takes a while. I don't think you just blurt it out and, you know, but, uh, but you got to walk that road. One interesting thing. So the church that I'm a part of, I've said several times is very openly affirming. We're a part of the Episcopal denomination, which is the entire denomination is affirming. But previously our church was planted as a Methodist church. And that was, you know, United Methodist Church has been in that debate for many, many years. And there are folks on both sides of it. 
our pastor was, you know, very outspoken about being affirming, but the situation, the circumstances were still, if he were to perform a wedding that he would lose his, not just his job, but his ordination, you know, he would lose kind of everything. And with seminary debt, things like that, like that's a really tough thing. Yeah. So, but he's brilliant. And the way that he sort of worked around that, because probably 50% of our community is queer in some way, you know, so this was going to be something that was going to be constant. He just had a really deep relationship with a Lutheran pastor who was free to do those things and they would perform weddings together. So he could do the entire ceremony up until their vows. And that's where his pastor friend, Ashley would do the actual vows and then they would finish out the ceremony. And it was, it was a way that like, yes, it was like a fine line he was walking, but he did what he could do until we could make the change over to the Episcopal. Yeah, I mean, eventually he still had to like, of course, find, yeah. find a way. But some of that himself. was always still at that yeah. point, there was still the possibility of the UMC becoming affirming officially. And that as soon as that happened that they decided not to, we left. But I say that to say that there are also options for people outside of just being silent because you feel stuck. You can find ways to, I guess I'm speaking specifically to pastors, but it probably applies universally that like, you know, if you have circumstances that really prevent you from immediately coming out publicly as an advocate fully and like breaking rules that might affect your livelihood, there are ways that you can still be openly participating and affirming and advocating for the people in your community. I believe that completely because I've watched it. So I, I'm wrestling internally right now because I want to be compassionate with those that I disagree with. I actually really do. (laughs) But like the fire in my belly about like the line of like, oh yeah, we accept you and we love you and you're welcome here. But you basically don't have the same full rights as members and citizens of our space. Like, to me, that feels like passive aggressive spiritual abuse. Mm-hmm. And like, it causes really long harm over time. And I know that like, that's not the intent of the person maybe saying those things. And like, I mean, I used to be when I was younger, and I was a late teenager, I said all the things like, hate the sin, love the sinner. You know, I thought you could pray the gay away. I read that kind of literature. And like, Ashley, I know you have a lot of history here as well, but it's like, I attended those conferences with my friends and I went to the Exodus type ministries as like with the, for the friend night, you know, where you bring family and friends and everyone talks about trying not to have same sex attraction. Like I was in those spaces and like, they're tortured. And like, when you are up close with somebody on their journey and you see like 20 years of their life get robbed. Mm-hmm like literally robbed because they can't be in their fullest self. There is a massive cost and it costs not just them, but the people in their lives. And it's literally stealing life from people. And so like, it's really hard for me when I hear those statements, even though like, that's not my personal story. It's a story I've shared and walked with, with people that I love. And so I just like, it's like crazy making. Cause yeah. it's like, I want to be compassionate to the person that's feeling confused in their theology or challenged in their theology and not knowing what to do or what the right thing to do is. And that's why I think it really does come down to spiritual bypassing and not listening to your body, not listening to your instincts. Like we talk about all those things, you know, but like, I just want to like shake the church that's not accepting on this issue and be like, 
I'm sorry, but you're wrong here and you're causing massive harm. And like, I don't hate you, but like, you have to do better. You're literally like genociding emotionally and spiritually an entire community of people. And like the private messages I got when I did my pride post from people who are like, I'm a pastor and I'm actually gay, but I can't come out. Or like, I haven't been able to come out my community yet. And like seeing you speak up is really helpful, but like, I don't know what to do. I had so many of those and they're all private because they can't make a public post Yeah, because there's a huge cost for them. Yeah. And so like, I'm thinking about like that community that's feeling silenced and like deeply wants to keep their spiritual family and spiritual tie, but they literally are like being privately or like passive aggressively ostracized. You're walking around in a space where you're never going to be an equal. Yeah. And people, I think, are convinced that they are justified by their best intentions, and you're not. And what I mean by that is, like, folks who think, I'm not doing harm, I'm doing, you know, it's tough love. It's like, this is what this person actually needs, is to be separated until they can sort of come to a place of, as long as you are thinking of a person's sexual identity as sinful or not, then you know, it's easy to convince yourself that separating yourself from them or separating them from the community is what's best for them. This is what I want to say, too. I think the context you brought in, Becky, of the fugitive word in the context of the movie and the way that he knew his innocence Mm -hmm. and he had to work so hard to prove he was innocent. Yeah, that's I've been sitting here just feeling like that's how I see this community is like... (laughs) Having walked with my first husband through that of like him trying to prove his worth Mm. for his entire fucking life to his own family, to his community. And I think that's where it just breaks my heart. And I I have a really, um, I broke down earlier. I'm trying to hold it together now having this um, conversation. (laughs) I have a hard time even finding words because it's so deeply personal to me. Yeah. But I just think about him. Because recently, and I've shared this with a couple people, but I stumbled across a podcast that my ex-husband did recently. And it was so interesting. He doesn't know, and he knows I'm doing a podcast. I don't know if he listens, but to hear his story now. And it was funny because I only got got like 15 seconds of airtime in his whole story. And I was kind of like, well. Jeez, you know, but <laughs> I thought we had such a deep. You know? Hey, we're four seasons <laughs> in, still talking about this dude. Right, you know? It was really helpful, but it was so it was so beautiful to me because I got mm. to hear him tell these stories of his younger childhood self, and I was the first person to hold wow. these stories that were deeply painful of him trying to change who he was to fit into the community he was mm. in because he was a fugitive within his own home, within his own family, with his parents who sat him down and said, we want you to be, you're normal. You're a normal boy. We don't want people to think you're gay. That's not good, which is, (laughs) so that was, the truth of who he was was there, but then this, what was put on top of him to try to carry forward, to try and be normal. And so I just think there's something interesting about how refuge implies that there is potentially a safe place to go. And fugitive to me is like, I'm on the run. In, and I think in this context that you're using from the movie of like, I'm an innocent fugitive and I need to prove that that's true. I mean, I just, that's the part that breaks my heart is like, there are so many people I know and love that like, you have nothing to prove. You are yeah. good and beautiful for who you are. That's right. Period. Like, can we just stop chasing these people down? You know, like, 
And that's where this legislation makes me so angry. And it's just, it's so deep to me as far as the energy that's put behind there and then trying to figure out, you know, again, where are those safe places? So I think both words hold a lot of weight behind them because they both work really well. So 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 Ashley, can I ask you, like, what does the advocacy look like for you today? Like, what does it actually mean for you? Like, my thing is like, and this is maybe part of the really obnoxious part of being like a heterosexual white male. I've had all of the privilege all of my life. And so it's really easy for me to feel paralyzed. Sometimes it's easier, like advocacy can feel like, I just feel really sorry for these people. Mm -hmm. My heart goes Mm -hmm. out to them, Mm -hmm. but what can I actually Mm -hmm. do? And I don't Mm -hmm. want to be that person. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people who are listening to be that person. And so I really want to get into like, what does it mean? Mm. So we've, the first thing, let's see that you mentioned was being outspoken. What else, what are the other elements of advocacy? Mm -hmm. It's interesting because as you were talking, and I think I was having this internal wrestle because during that season of my life, I was so outspoken and I was his protector. I was his safeguard. I was the one who was communicating what was happening to like all of the people in our life. Do you mean like the season of divorce or the season of the three years you guys trying to stay together? all of it. Okay. Like okay. in the divorce, it was like, I was the shield for him. And then as things kind of unraveled and we like took some space together, I was like, nobody was protecting me in that. Yeah. Mm. And so I had to do my own work. And so I think why it's a hard question is I've actually had to pull like in an outspoken sense, yeah. I've had to pull back for my own just recovery, recovery in, in a well, lot of ways. Because you took a lot of frontline hits, I want to say, of, of people's yeah. judgment, people's words mm-hmm. that they would have used for your ex, mm-hmm. they used towards mm-hmm. you because yeah. why are you staying? Why mm-hmm. are you? Yes. So much questions, so many things. And yeah. then, and plus in a deep faith community. So it was from that. So to me now, it's more about embodying being a safe place, mm-hmm. I guess. It feels much more just, I want to say like tender. And I think why so much of this work on my the spiritual side for me of language has been really important because it's helped me find space for people that I love and care for because that was what was such a huge shift was not only like the crashing down on the fact like, Oh, you're attracted to men and we're married. How do we like work through this? But then being in a, in a faith system where I was like, well, how does that fit? And then being the person that was trying to re- like, well, maybe if you like, if you just do these three things, we do counseling. I mean, I was deep in that. Of, like, I know girl. Like, <laughs> just, I mean, going to the conferences and things and believing like, Oh, you know, if this you is can the heal human trauma, you love, right? Yeah, but like, like you're this, trying to do the best with the yes, tools and the information yes. you have. But believing yeah. at a certain in a certain season of life, like, oh, this is a trauma that happened to you because of this, this, and this, right, right, right. and thinking like we could just reverse it that way. You know, it's like, and so I had to do my own work. And it, the thing that God bless him, he answered so many of my questions. Like we would just be saying, and it, so there's a point within a relationship where just I know for both of us it just got exhausting because I was like, well, you're my person. I get to ask like, well, what about this and that, and how does this feel and da da da. You know, like. And so it was just, I feel like I learned so much in that. And what I learned, I remember having this moment because within my own family, my extended family, this is true. We have gay and transgender within my family. And so what's really just interesting to me is how many people within my own family system is like trying to prove, (laughs) like, if you just do this, we can do that. Like trying to find the solution for what, to fix, to something. fix, to like something, untran, ungay. Them. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I remember having a moment where it was like I just had to 
that moment of acceptance of like, oh, there is nothing I can, there's nothing I need to do. There's nothing I need to do to change you and love you and be here. And, and that same thing for him of just like that acceptance place for him too, to come to that. And I think it's so, it's such a mutual, I'm trying to figure out the words for this because being in relationship in that situation, not only was I trying to accept the situation, but he was trying to accept it himself of this truth of who he was. Mm. And so I just got to the point where I was like, it is not my job to try and solve something for you. My job is just to be with you in this and listen and accept and be. And I think alongside of this at the same time, I let go of the notion of hell. I let go of all it. So, mm. so many of the content, not only wanting to try and stay married was part of it, but like trying to save him from something. Yeah. And so by letting go of so many of those pieces, it was like, oh, I get to, we get to just be. And so now it's literally 10 years this year that I've been divorced. Mm. And to look and see where he is now living his full self. And then interestingly enough to hear in this podcast, like where he's at and what he's still wrestling through as a gay man and actually would identify as queer and different things. Like it was just really beautiful to me of like the journey that he's on in such deep, still doing the work of it, but finding community and having to move to California to find a safe place because his family, they're generally accepting, you know. But I don't know if that necessarily answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think witness. it gets to, yes. yeah, so the, yeah. the, and that maybe that actually comes before the outspoken piece. And I, I would think, agree. I think we yeah. got to this a little bit in season one or two or something. We've talked about this before, but like, I think so long as we don't have anything at stake in the conversation, then it gets to just be this sort of, it's really simple. Like even with like the Roe versus Wade and the stuff we talked about a few episodes back that like, as long as those are just like political ideas that are out there and there are statistics and there's numbers and there's like, they're just these things to debate about, but we don't have actual relationships with anyone who would be affected by those things. There's no stake in it for us. And so it's really easy to have a stance on something that doesn't affect anyone you're in community with. I, we don't ever do this, and I, we didn't prepare to do this. Tommy, would you come get on a mic for a minute? <laughs> There's something that I've heard Tommy say. Mm-hmm. Tommy's our producer. Tommy's our co-producer. co-producer. And, and Tommy, there's a thing that I've heard you talk about before that I would love for you to articulate if you're willing. And I'm going to butcher this, and I'm hoping you'll just clean up the mess here. You've talked about how advocates essentially are a part of the queer community. Does that ring a bell for you? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Uh, yeah. Would you, as he's, <laughs> as he's taking producer notes, yeah. he's doing his job at the same time. Would you be willing to yeah, like yeah. share that again? Because it's, it's one of those things that since the first time I heard you say it, it's really, it's just bounced around in my brain for a long time. And I just think yeah. you'll articulate it beautifully. I was actually just writing down on my notes a moment ago. I don't actually think that we need advocates in the queer community. I don't think we need anybody to speak up for us. I think we just need friends. And we just need mamas and we just need family and we need churches that are safe and we need places that are safe to just be right. And so, yeah, part of that is making it very clear that this is a safe place, but like we don't have to fight the people that hate us. No, I mean, and we don't have to change anybody's mind about whether they're accepting or not accepting I mean, I spent a lot of my life, first of all, I mean, just being confused, right? Like for me, a big part of my story is that my dad is gay 
And so that was like the thing that I was scared of people finding out as a kid, like, Oh my God, like if they found out my dad's gay, they're going to make fun of me. And like, I didn't even think about my own sexuality really until later in life. And so for me, my story of being queer looks very different than someone who knew that they were gay at four, right? It's a very different story. And that's the other thing too, is that there are so many people in the queer community who don't necessarily have this story of being a sexual refugee. And I know that we're talking specifically about refugees right now, but like there's pastors and there's people that have created these beautiful spaces and communities. And like, we don't need to speak for them. And I think we've already said that before. So I don't think that anybody here is trying to speak for, I think we're all trying to speak up with Mm. and to be with. Right. And I think that that really is the key. And when Ashley said it, like Latifah saw me like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the background, she like winked at me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, we don't need people outside the community speaking up for us. We just need more people in the community, in our communities. And what I'm saying about like speaking up as like, I'm an advocate. It's just saying like, Hey, I can be your friend we can be together and I'm not going to like come around and then be like, well, actually, you know, and that's where the clarity is so important. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's where the piece that I need to know before we can be friends Mm -hmm. that you've already put it out there. Yeah. Because if you're going to be my friend, like you don't need to know that you're not worried about being fired for me because like, I don't want you to get fired if you're my friend. So I like, don't put that pressure on me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So like, do your work and then let's be friends. Yeah. yeah. So like, it's really important to be really clear and to say like, I am a safe place. And like, there are no strings. There are no conditions. It's just, Hey, you're Tommy. I think you're great because let's, if we really want to get into the the realness of it, right? Like whether you're straight, gay, anything like all of us spend, you know, 99% of our lives outside of the bedroom. <laughs> yeah. And so like, who I am as a human is 99% nothing to do with my orientation or desires or any of that. Right. I want you to know all of me, but I also don't want my whole life to be about this one thing. Well, like I, I think about, I have so many people that end up on my sofa who I end up being one of the handful of first people that they tell, like I'm, I'm queer. I'm in this, you know, community, but I'm hiding myself. And I like listen to their stories of like heartbreak that they have suffered privately and alone. And like, and I think about if I had gone through my first divorce, I don't know if I call that heartbreak as much as just devastation, but like if I had gone through my first breakup with my boyfriend of two years and I was heartbroken, but I couldn't tell anybody about it, it would have been a lot harder to grieve that loss. Like part of grieving loss is community coming around you and saying, oh, that fucking sucks. I'm so sorry your heart is broken and like, come over, like, let's hang out or like, let's, and when like, I think about all my friends who've had to like privately grieve heartbreak as like one topic, because if they tell somebody that they're heartbroken and then they have to say who they're heartbroken over, it becomes a totally different issue. Right. So it's not just like, what do you do in the bedroom? It, like it accesses like normal parts of our life, like grief cycles and like even and then celebrating. Like if I had to keep it private that Lucas and I were getting married and I met the love of my life at 37, but nobody came to celebrate with us, like we still would have done it, but it was such a better party, like having people celebrate, like you guys celebrated us having a baby last night and I was crying like the whole time, like it felt really good. And I feel like you, you lose your witnesses. Yes when you have to be private about 
your daily life, you know, and that to me is stripping someone of humanity of the human process. And like, it's just, how do we expect people to do that? That's just like, so, so, so sad. And the reason why I think it's important, because I was just asking myself, well, why is, I usually advise people who are, they're like, do I stay or do I go when I, when I'm in this church that I love, but I'm not fully supported. I usually say, GTFO. Yeah, leave. Go find a space where you can be accepted because this isn't your job. And celebrated. It's not your job to change their minds. And you're probably not going to, you know, and like, yeah, and celebrated. And, but the reason why I think it is an important topic is because we have sexual refugees in the queer community that maybe they can flee a church space, but they're not going to be able to flee some policies that are being passed in a lot of states. And then what we want to ask them to move their families or their kids or their lives or their jobs. And we do know that policy is affected by church evangelical communities voting and big droves. And so that's why it is an important topic because yeah, they might not need to attend a brick and mortar on a Sunday, but they're still going to live at their zip code every day. And are they going to have the same rights in their zip code? And so I think it is important to address. Yeah. It's funny how much I'm coming back. I said this as a joke at the start about sexual Richard Kimball's and sexual Tommy Lee Jones. And I realized like, as we've been talking, like, oh, I'm a sexual Tommy Lee Jones. And, <laughs> like, yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just pause there for a moment, Luke, and marinate. Tommy Lee Jones's <laughs> character in the 1993 movie, The Fugitive. <laughs> is a great metaphor for my experience with the queer community in that I used to be the one who was accusing. I used to be the one that thought there was a problem and thought that I could solve the problem. And maybe it was really late as it is for Tommy Lee Jones at the end of that movie. He realizes, Oh, I've been, I've been wrong. I need to protect him instead of chasing. Yeah. Like I have been on the wrong side of this conversation. And I think, I hope that that can be hopeful for people who maybe also feel like, I could never be outspoken about this because I've already been outspoken in the wrong way. I've already been outspoken on the other side of it. And like, maybe that's what a sexual Tommy Lee Jones is. <laughs> we're, we're just going to call it a, a sexual TLJ. I think that's going to be, does that make sense though? Like I'm realizing like even those of us who have been on the wrong side of the conversation and granted that was like a long time ago for me, but I will say again, it changed for me when I was, when I realized I'm in deep relationship with someone who has been affected by this their entire life. And that person was like in their sixties at that point Mm. and had spent 40 plus of those years in therapy. Most of those years trying to undo what was natural to them and finally accepting it's not a thing to be undone. This is who I am. Even if no one, understands that but i would say too that's that is how i guess i never would say <laughs> sexual tommy lee jones but that was the journey of my marriage you should say like, it. Yeah. it feels good to say <laughs> <laughs> but like i think about where i was at the beginning of this of my marriage and then where i am today yeah. you know and i think sometimes you know i talked often if like if i wouldn't have grown up in purity culture what would what would my life have turned out like instead of marrying the first person you know that <laughs> Yeah, just oh my gosh, so many things, if. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in you know, you can't undo the past, and that was one of the most definitive. That broke me open mm. in a way that changed the trajectory of my life, and I became a better human because of it. Yeah. And I think that I'm grateful for that, and it 
came in an interesting way, but I just think about my own process in that of like, mm-hmm. it's okay to change your language, what you're saying. You know, like, I think there is fear around that sometimes, but it's like, gosh, we are, we are verbs. We're always evolving people. And that's the human experience too. Yeah. You know? I want to see the fugitive part two where Tommy Lee Jones and Richard Kimball are like, <laughs> BFF. you know, I, I do want to say, and Steve, you, you kind of spoke to this early on. There is cost to living life with people, really living life with people. There's also great reward. But like, even like I think about my story, like I financially have, my financial life has really changed in regards to as I've become an advocate for lots of things, right? Like divorce being a healthy outlet for the queer community. It has directly financially impacted my bottom line every year. No question my opportunities, but it's felt so good, you know, but it's also one of the things that prevented me from speaking out sooner, even though like Mm. privately I was very outspoken. Right. And so like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I've been doing this, you know, outspoken thing for a long, long time. But I think that like, when I like go back to the idea of, of even pregnancy, like there's cost to my body to make space to expand for this person but I haven't even met him and it's like so fucking worth it, you know? So like, I don't know. I feel like you might have something to add there, but like, I just, I don't want to like paint a picture of like, it's just like costless. Like there's just cost with the choices we make, but that doesn't mean the cost is bad or not, not rewarding. It's very well said Latifah. There is a cost. There's also a cost for staying silent, you know, in your mm. own body and it costs your friendships and, and you just get to a point where you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, you know, but also just compassion for yourself. For maybe right now you're listening and you're thinking, I need to, I need to, you know, show myself. I need to be, I need to be out loud. And um, once you cross that Rubicon, there really is no going back. Yeah. So, I mean, you yeah. need to know that. And that's okay. I mean, that's really okay. But if you know uh it's a beautiful the water is beautiful it is over in this pond and it's worth it and and there is a cost i just have a little story and it was actually at your wedding ashley and i got to perform this wedding it was so beautiful Mm. but after the wedding was done and i you know i was talking to some of your guests and there was this lovely couple that came up to me this gay couple that came up to me and they said do you do couples counseling? And I was like, I was like, yes, I do. And, but I had to tell them I've never done gay couple counseling before. And I remember they said to me, what if we were your first? Oh, and I said, I would love that. Mm. I just love that. And I want to say now, since I've stood up and I'm, I'm, you're out. One of the things I, I told my husband at one point, I said, I'm going to lose my whole practice. Mm. And I want to say, I did lose some people. I did. But the people I've gained, mm. the stories of the lives I get to go into mm. are breathtaking. Mm. They are breathtaking. And I want to say it's not, I, I have so much to learn still. And I don't want to, I think I've been thinking about your question, like, what does it mean to be an advocate? And I'm like, I don't know that I want to be an advocate. I just want to create a place 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I am an advocate, but I don't, I want to create a place that I think it's kind of arrogant of me to think that I have to be this advocate mm-hmm. in this community. Like you said, Tommy, it's like, you're already whole. Can I just be with you? Yeah. And I'm thinking of that language. Can I bear witness and be with for the purpose of discovering the hope mm. that you don't have to run anymore? Mm. You don't have to run. I love that. So maybe it's not like I'm an advocate. It's just I am friend. Like well, I liked your I am with. Yeah, withness. I am with. I am with. Yeah. Withness. Yeah. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcasts. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. It's okay to grieve those places that we missed out on. Yeah. And I think that's huge for the purity culture because I hear that over and over again. I married the first person I had sex with because I felt like I had to. And I'm like, oh, okay. And now they're, you know, mortgage and three kids and like, would I have married them? And so I think there's a lot of being able to grieve something. And I think there's wisdom in that, but how do I then live something with authenticity?